everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. So a family is watching uh, this TV show. It's not a current show, I don't think. It's called Suits. Uh, suits. It wasn't a huge hit. I think some of you may be familiar with it, but basically the premise is it's a high-power Manhattan law firm, and the rule of the law firm is you only get to work there if you graduated from Harvard Law School. They are the snobbiest of snobby lawyers. They have multi-million dollar clients, and they're all gorgeous. Like, you can stare at anyone on the screen, and they're beautiful people in these immaculate outfits. It's called suits because of lawsuits, but mostly because the main character, Harvey Specter, wears impeccably tailored suits. Like, I keep staring at this man like, you're, too, you're uncomfortably beautiful as a man. Anyway, that's really not what the show's about, but I find myself lost in him. And... Um, Basically, the premise starts in the first episode where Harvey Specter needs an associate and he's bored with the same old boring Harvard graduates who say the same stupid thing. And in comes a young guy named Mike Ross. Now, Mike Ross is running from the police because they've caught him selling marijuana and he bursts into Harvey's office with a briefcase and it spills open and there's weed everywhere and Harvey's like, this looks fun. And it turns out that Mike Ross has a photographic memory. He's a high school graduate. He wanted to be a lawyer, but he got caught taking the test for the dean's daughter. He made money. He put himself through college by taking tests for people because he's a genius. He has a photographic memory. He can see something one time and he never forgets it for the rest of his life. So if you showed him your driver's license when he was eight years of age, he can tell you now that he's in his 20. And not surprisingly, he's also extremely handsome because apparently that's what was required on this show, suits. So... Harvey hires Mike, and they're both in on the secret. This guy's not a Harvard-graduated lawyer, but he did pass the bar because he's brilliant. He's just got a high school degree, and they, they go in together. And over six seasons, you know, it's the whole, will they be caught, won't they? And it's kind of a Batman and Robin show with the, the guy and the sidekick solving crimes and law cases and all of this. And slowly over the six years, a few people in the law firm start to discover Mike's secret. By this point, he's already paid someone to hack into the Harvard system and put his name in the classes, transcripts. They've gone a long way to cover up this crime. But by season six, I'm not going to spoil it, but by season six, not only do his own firm know, but now the federal prosecutors have figured it out and he's on trial as a fraud because he's not really a lawyer. Okay, that's the premise. So where things get interesting is all through the six years, once in a while he gets close to getting into trouble, getting found, they bribe this person, they threaten this person, they cover up the secret. Now they're on trial, now they have to decide, are we going to perjure ourselves? Uh, to, to protect this lie. And it's a multi-episode uh, part of season six where Mike's on trial, and it's about six episodes, and they're pretty shady lawyers. They really have no problem having, shall we say, a loose relationship to ethics to get, uh, get Mike dismissed, even though they all know he's as guilty as sin. And what was interesting is I'm watching it. I mean, it's six seasons. I'm pretty invested in this show and the outfits. Anyway, um, 
What was interesting is what was going on in my heart as I'm watching Mike on trial as they prove that he's not really a lawyer and the depths to which they go each episode to cover up, to bribe somebody, to threaten somebody else. And I almost like just yelled out of the screen. I'm like, just admit you did it. You're going to feel so much better. Like, all of the work to cover the lie upon lie, all of the threats you've had to do, all of the blackmail, just stand up in court and say, I'm a fraud, I'm not a lawyer, send me to prison, I'll do my time and then I have a fresh start. There's something in the human condition that we want absolution. There's one scene before, I I won't tell you whether he was found guilty or not, there's one scene where a lady comes over and she says, you're innocent. She knows he's not a Harvard lawyer. She says, you're innocent because you have an innocent heart, she says. What? (laughs) He goes to the Catholic priest of his childhood. Anytime someone on TV goes to a religious representative, I get really nervous. It's an occupational hazard of mine. I'm like... How's this going to go? This Catholic priest is fantastic. This is the priest of his childhood. When he was really young, his parents died. He has a rough story. On and on we go. And this guy really took him under his wing. And the priestess says to him, he says, just admit, you're going to feel, just admit what you need is absolution. He just stands in front of this young lawyer and just dissolves all of the deceit, all of the, the case that they built. And he just says, you're guilty. You're guilty and you can be free. It's interesting in our culture today how anxiously we are to accept each other, how anxious we are about not judging, and by doing that, we gloss over what we need most, which is absolution. You and I, we need somebody to absolve us. In other words, we need somebody to say, you are forgiven. There's a pop singer named Charlie Peacock. Many of you probably don't know him. He's kind of in a, tucked away in a Christian corner. He never got very famous uh, like Amy Grant. But he actually has a song that makes the case that there's something we need even more than unconditional love, and that's forgiveness. That what we most need is for someone to absolve us. But we're so quick to hide and blame. But if we just say, I was wrong, and then somebody says, I forgive you, we're free. Today is the final week in our series. We've been cranking through this series all summer, the villains of the Bible. Each week we've been looking at a different villain. Most of the time we look at a person. Last week, Tom Morris brought the Antichrist to us, and yet you came back. So that's impressive, right? Um, And sometimes we even get interesting. We've looked at weather patterns and how they have upended people's lives in the Bible. And today we're going to look at two villains because they're twins, sin and death. Sin and death. These are the two twin-linked villains, and they're known all through church history as the human being's primary predicament. In other words, if you and I have problems, we have one primary problem, which is the twins, sin and death. Now, sin and death are not identical twins. They're more fraternal. They don't look the same, but they both, they come from the same dad. One thing is for sure, 
They're, you know those twins? Uh, hands up if you know twins, whether they're identical. Yeah, most of us know twins. Hands up those of you that you very rarely see one twin without the other nearby. Like they just travel everywhere together. Some twins like a little space. Most twins I know, like the you know, set of twins, they go to college, they want to be each other's roommate because they were roommates in the womb, right? Like they just, they like to stick together. But these twins, sin and death, they come from the same father and they do, these are the twins they go everywhere together. Anywhere you see death, sin will be lurking. Anywhere you see sin, you'll find death nearby. And they're best friends, sin and death. Now, here's the question that has been asked through all of church history. Which one was born first? Who's the oldest, sin or death? Well, it depends on who you ask. This is just a little nerd thing. It's not really important. And for those of you who like to think about these things, you'll enjoy it for the rest of us. You can just glaze over and Google suits and see if you can start streaming it. I know how it goes. I get it. Okay, which one was born first? Well, in the Western church, like us, we are the Western church or the Catholics. We say, well, obviously sin came first and then through sin, death was born. In the Eastern church, the Greek and the Russian Orthodox they said, no, you guys are crazy. It's the other way around. Death came first, and through the portal of death, sin was born. The Eastern Church, which you and I are not very versed in, they say sin is what we do because of our fear of death. So in the Orthodox tradition, we sin to try to keep death far away from us. In the Western tradition, our tradition, uh, 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 sin is what came first and then the punishment is death. The Eastern church says, no, that's not really how it works. Death is the problem. Sin is our attempted solution. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? The correct answer is it doesn't really matter. They're both chicken. What do we do with sin? What do we do with death? Now, those of you who aren't followers of Christ we're in this predicament together. Those of us who are followers of Christ, those of us who are not followers of Christ. Uh, you know, if you've been around Discovery for a while, you know that we are a church that equally welcomes people who are followers of Christ, people who are not followers of Christ, because we know that many of you are on a spiritual quest, you're, you're trying to make meaning of your life, or for some of you, as we talk to you, you've hit some kind of roadblock in your life. And you're like, I don't know, what do I, I don't, there's, there's nothing in me to manage. I need something outside of me. And, and for many of you, like, I'm not sure what to think of the church nowadays, but those people seem nice enough and I'm going to try to come. I want you to know that this is a church that equally welcomes the follower of Jesus, those who aren't followers of Jesus, the skeptic, the cynic, the hostile skeptic, the wounded, and the atheist. It may surprise you, that discovery has a number of atheists who are part of our church. You're like, how does that work? Quite well, actually, because we are all trying to figure out what do you do with this primary predicament, sin and death. Now, those of you who are atheists, uh, it may sound weird from a preacher, you have an advantage over those of us who are believers when it comes to death. The atheist solves the problem of death by simply saying that there's no problem at all with death. There's nothing on the other side of death. You die and you're dead, problem solved. But for the follower of Christ or for 90 plus percent of the world's population who have this, what do you want to call it, an instinct? 
that there must be something more. What if there's something more? Just backstage, when we were praying together as a team, the band and everyone who helps make this service happen, Jimmy, one of our worship leaders, was just leading us in, you know, where have you seen God at work and talking about having a quick visit to the Grand Tetons. And you look at those mountains and your pulse quickens. What is that? Those of us who are followers of Christ, we think we can explain it. We think it's because there is a God, not just some deistic God who's far away and largely uninvolved in our lives, who set the world in motion and then said, good luck with that, but actually an involved God, a personal God, an intimate God who knows your name and knows your pain and knows what you're carrying and knows what's going on in your life. And so for us, death is not solved by being dead. It just introduces another problem that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth solved. But if you are an atheist, how do you solve the problem of sin? Okay, so you solve the problem of death. Dead, you're dead, that's it, problem solved. What about sin? How do you understand sin? Uh, to, to quote um, The Sound of Music, and as a red-blooded man, I feel comfortable doing that. What do you do with a problem like sin? How do you resolve it? So, the twin-linked villain number one, sin. And then we'll go to death. And it is going to be fun. Don't worry about it. Sin is a revolt. It's a clear statement that we're our own gods. Most commonly, we think of sins as things we do. When you're just in our culture today, sin is what you do and don't do. There's a, there's a list of things you should stay away from. There's a list of things you should try to do. There's a TV show. I'll, I'll confess to you, I've actually never watched it, so I don't know much about it, but I know some of you have watched it called The Good Place, and it's got to do with heaven and hell and people. What I, the, the thing I grabbed from The Good Place is they actually have a list of a point system of sins and good behaviors to help you figure out if you're going to get to the good place or the bad place. Here's the first slide. Some really entertaining things on here. If you host a refugee family, at least five people, from Syria for three years, you get 272,000 points. If you attend your cousin's friend's child's jazz dance recital, 29 points. You help a hermit crab find a new shell, 17 points. You eat vegan, that's 400 points, but if you never discuss veganism unprompted, even more points. Yeah, it's really good. Buy, bring your own grocery bags to the store, 2,000 points. Carefully put a spider outside. Self-monitoring potentially nauseating mouth sounds while chewing gum. But then they also have the negative list. The next slide of the stuff in red, committing genocide. My favorite, when you fail to disclose a camel illness when selling a camel. Yeah. If you ever tell a woman to smile, that's negative points, ladies. And you're like, only negative 53? It should be way more. If you use Facebook as a verb, negative points. If you blow your nose by pressing on one nostril down and then exhaling, some of you are poking someone right now. They're good place sins. But here's what's interesting about this list. It's funny. It, it does capture the way some people think about this, but it never mentions what is also true, which is systemic sin. It's all individual sin. People magazine, several years ago, they surveyed their readers, and then they did what they call a syndex, a sin index. They said, overall, readers said that they commit an average of 4.64 sins per month. 
understating it much, are we? Isn't that the evidence that we struggle with sin, that we're just in full-blown denial about it? But God teaches us that sin isn't something we do. It's a condition we're in. In this culture, we have bought into the lie that sin, first of all, is relative. It's kind of whatever you think it is, baby. And, and never mind, like when we start talking about an absolute objective right and wrong, this culture gets really nervous about that. We're like, oh, you can't be that way. You can't be exclusive. But what's fascinating to me is that relative person in Western culture that says, you don't get determined what's wrong. If you go and punch them in the face, they're going to say, that was wrong. And you're going to say, that was funny, wasn't it? Thanks for that. Yeah. I gave you an idea for school this week. Just try it out. Yeah. Call me if the principal calls you. I'll take care of it. By the way, is your principal sitting right behind you? Because there is a principal sitting right behind you. Is that your principal? Mitch, is, are you his principal? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll free up time in my schedule, Mitch, in case it happens. Yes, yeah, somebody who says, well, who's to say what's right and wrong? You punch them in the face. They say that's wrong. You're like, who's to say? I don't think it's wrong. It felt good. No, there is an objective standard. We all know it. We all know it. You know why we know it? Because we all have a sense of justice built into us. Even those of you who are atheists, even those of you who don't inherently believe that there's any kind of higher power, any kind of God, you still have an inherent sense of right and wrong. Where did that come from? The Christian says we know exactly where it came from. It came from God who created the universe and who knows the best way for humans to live the best way for humans to be free, to be fully alive, to be most filled with joy. One of the great mistakes the church has made is turning sin into some kind of punishment list instead of showing people that it's a slavery list. That's what sin is. When you are in sin, you are enslaved and you need to be set free and you cannot free yourself. Sin is less about right and wrong, even though right and wrong is involved and it's more about slavery and freedom. And the reason to not sin is more about being free as a human being than it is about doing things and disappointing God or making God angry. There's this grave mistake that even the church has perpetuated that says, when you sin, God's going to be angry at you. Yes, there are passages in the Bible that talk about the anger of God, yes. But there are also passages that talk about God is a father, and God laid out a way to live for us that said, this is the best way for you to live. I remember we now have an induction stove, so this story doesn't work so well with an induction stove, but back in the old days of our old stove, it got hot. Induction stoves don't stay hot very long. Those of you are like, why are you telling us this? That's why. I got a little carried away with my induction. Right now, I'm committing an induction stove in my heart. Anyway, um, my kids, we would tell them, don't touch the stove. If you do, you're going to get burned. Now, when they touch the stove, I don't know what it is about the cuss kids. I blame their mother. They all did. We didn't say, oh, I was hoping you would touch the stove. I'm happy that you touched the stove. Now I'm looking forward to punishing you because you touched the stove. We said, oh, no, no, you touched the stove. Are you hurt? Are you okay? 
There wasn't a lick in me that said, I told you so, or I was hoping you would do that, or you need to figure it out yourself now, kid. No, a father rushes in and says, oh, you're hurt, you're hurt, you're injured, let me help you. You touch the stove. I, that's why I told you not to do it. It's not good for you. That's the vision of sin and freedom in the Bible. And God teaches us that sin isn't something we do. It's a condition we're in. It's less about being as good as you can and overlooking the bad. It's more about recognizing that you are sick and you need a doctor. You're lost, and you need rescue. Colossians chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Let me skip down a little. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him. Now, I understand this was written by Paul and he is a genius and he can be tough to follow on a Sunday morning. So here's where you re-engage, those of you who, who checked out. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once, Paul writes, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Paul goes on to write in Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sin and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Yeah, it's, it's true. Paul is not a good storyteller. Uh, he tried it once when he talked about the different heavens and it just got so confusing, you just keep turning the page. But wowzers can Paul write some prose and this right here is some of his finest. If you want to go home later today, Colossians 1 and 2, just spend some time in Colossians 1 and 2. Those of you who are not followers of Christ, you can just Google it. It'll pop up on your Google. It's Paul making a case. Paul's kind of a lawyer. He likes to argue. He likes to prove. And one of the genius moves of Paul is he takes the, the empire. He was in the Roman Empire. He takes some of the things that the Roman Empire are afraid of most or proud of most, and he flips them. And here, the Roman Empire is really proud that they can dehumanize someone by executing them on a torture instrument called a cross. And in this passage, Paul basically says, oh yeah, by being nailed to the cross, Jesus disarmed the power of the Roman Empire. And the readers are like, what? Are you crazy? Jesus was just one of the 10,000 people the Roman Empire crucified. Paul's like, no, no, there was so much more going on on the cross than you can imagine. Uh, Jesus disarmed powers and authority, and then he made a public spectacle of them. Paul's using this phrase because the Roman Empire would treat a cross like a billboard. 
when they would crucify someone, they would always do it in a public place so that when you're walking by or riding by on your donkey and you see someone crucified, it's like a billboard. It's like saying, if you mess with the Roman Empire, you'll be on one of these things too. A public spectacle. It's one of the most dehumanizing ways to treat a human being. And here's Paul saying, you know what Jesus did to the Roman Empire? He made a public spectacle out of the sin and darkness of this world when he died on the cross. It, it's, it's amazing. And then this statement where Paul says, God reconciled to himself all things, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then, I mean, I guess if I was an underliner of the Bible, it's hard to underline your Bible now, isn't it? Those of you who have a Bible, yeah, it's digital. It's just not the same. But if I was an underliner, I think this is what I'd be underlining. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, if you have never submitted your life to Jesus Christ, you can do it today. And one of the reasons to do it is for the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot forgive yourself. You are in a predicament, the primary predicament that every human being is in, that you are in sin if you are not in Christ. And I know for, for some of you, you're like, there's got to be a third option. According to the scriptures and the Christian teaching, there is no third way. There are two ways. You are in sin or you are in Christ. And in this culture, that's one of the most radical, countercultural, uh, rude things you can say. Two choices. In sin, in Christ. Make your choice. Yeah, you have to grapple with whether you think it's true or not. Uh, we believe it's true and we've experienced it as true in our own lives. I, I can just tell you as somebody who was not raised in any kind of religious system at all, I didn't come to Christ until I was 14 and I knew I was lost. You did not have to tell me I was lost. I knew it. I felt so lost. And I was raised in a loving family. I was still lost. And then to discover that the God of the universe found me and thought I was worth dying for and then took my slate and just wiped it clean. No more sin, no more shame. I didn't have to cover over my mistakes anymore. I can make mistakes and just stand here as an imperfect human being. I don't have to minimize, obfuscate, accuse. I can be exactly human-sized because Jesus died for my sin. You can too. The second villain, death. The Eastern Orthodox Church, it actually says that sin is born out of our fear of death. We're all afraid to die, so we act in ways to postpone death by any means possible. So war and violence then is nothing more than our fear of death acted out. Uh, John Goldentongue, he who fears death is a... You're like, is his name really John Goldentongue? Uh, that's his nickname. John is his birth name. I don't know his last name. He's known in the church as John Chrysostom. For those of you who want to Google this guy, he's considered one of the finest preachers in all of human history. And Chrysostom is simply a nickname for golden tongue. I thought that was pretty cool, so I put it on the screen for you. It's just the way we serve around here. It's just what we do. He who fears death is a slave, and he subjects himself to everything in order to avoid dying. But... He who does not fear death is outside the tyranny of the devil. Jesus' death and resurrection killed the power of death. Jesus' death killed death. Jesus' resurrection shows that in Christ, no one who is in Christ will stay dead. Those of you who are atheists, 
you don't believe there's anything else after death. What the church believes, I know you know this, but what the church believes is after we are dead, the dead in Christ will rise and we will be given eternal life. And I know that sounds like a fantasy to you. We have bet our life on it and we're not stupid. I think one of the biggest mistakes, listen, I'm not picking on atheists. I have friends who are atheists. I have tremendous respect. We have respect for each other. As a follower of Jesus, I think one of the biggest mistakes atheists make is you think that Christians are stupid. You think you are intellectually smarter than us. It's not true. I'll take my PhD astrophysicist member of my church and pit him against you, and he's a passionate follower of Jesus. You want to rumble? We'll rumble. We'll rumble on the brain. Christians are not unintelligent people. We have researched this. We have looked into this, and we have come to believe that there will be a resurrection because God is life, and in God, death cannot keep a hold God's eternal life bursts through death and makes all things new. If you've ever seen that kind of picture where everything's dark and then suddenly light bursts through the holes and now it's blindingly light, God makes all things new. In the last book of The Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji wakes up after a big, big struggle and he's thinking everything is lost and instead he discovers that all his friends were around him and he cries out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead and I thought I was dead. And then he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of September 11th and uh, many of us posted something about it. George W. Bush gave an incredible speech. If you haven't seen it, I'd recommend going back and watching it, it was exactly nine minutes and 11 seconds long. Uh, a member of our church, Mariana, posted on Facebook the entire transcript of Flight 93 and Todd Beamer. Uh, that's the flight, many of you probably remember, the flight that was most likely headed to the White House or the Capitol. And in the transcript, I spent time reading through it yesterday. It was really moving. I hadn't thought about that story actually in quite a while, I confess. And there is something about the 9-11 anniversary that takes you right back to where you were. Uh, and, and, and wonderfully, some of you have no memory of it whatsoever. But most of us, we could tell you right where we were when that happened. So I spent some time reading through on Mariana's post as she just copied the very long transcript where Todd Beamer was able to find one of those air phones back in the days where planes had air phones and he was able to sneak a phone call even though the terrorists had taken over his plane and he called into 911 and through the course of the conversation, he's like, uh, it feels like something's going on and she's like, well, I hate to tell you but there's already been three planes crashed into buildings. It feels to us like yours is heading somewhere to DC and Beamer's like, all right, well, I know what to do. He said, <laughs> he said, tell my wife, and my young kids, I love them. His wife was carrying his unborn child, his third child. And then he said to the operator, would you pray with me right now? And they prayed together the Lord's Prayer. And then he gathered the people and he gave his life. Now, I don't know. Uh, he didn't indicate in the transcript anything about whether he was afraid. It seemed like he was very clear on what to do. There was a group of them, as you know, that overcame the terrorists and they crashed the plane and they all gave their lives. And I say that quickly, I don't mean it in any way that was flippant, they pay the ultimate price. 
what was fascinating to me is it's very clear from the transcript that he might have been afraid of what was going to go down, but he was not afraid of death. He willingly gave his life to save people because he was a follower of Christ. That's why he asked the operator by that point, they're on, uh, I think it was with the FBI, they're all on a call, and he says to them all, we're all going to pray together. And then, he, because cause death for him was not the end. So here's how I want to wrap up the message. For those of you who are not in Christ, you might fear death. Those of us who are in Christ, I've said this a number of times at this church, I'm afraid of dying, I'm not afraid of being dead. There are scenarios, just to be completely frank with you, there are scenarios where I picture dying. I have been with a lot of people who have died, and so I have a fear of dying. It's true. But once that process is over, I have no fear at all. I'm not afraid of dead, being dead because I'm in Christ. And that doesn't make me better than anyone else. I don't feel smug about that. I just know and have bet my life on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What makes the most logical sense to me, I'm not just talking as a theologian or a preacher, but logically, what makes the most sense to me is that God is the author of life and in him is no death at all. And because God is the giver of life, I've always believed that, and then my wife gave birth to a baby and then I really believed it. As I held my firstborn son and I was like, there must be a God. This is a miracle, the miracle of life. And I believe the dead in Christ will rise and we will stand before God and those of us in Christ will not have to give an account for our life because Jesus abolished our sin. That is why you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's not just after you die, you do it for now. So I'm going to invite Daniel and the team to come out because we're actually going to celebrate this truth by worship. But I'm just going to put some descriptions on the screen of what the scripture teaches that God has done to death. Now, there's eight things here. This is all I could fit on one screen. I got the font as small as I was comfortable with. There's way more in the Bible. You can Google it. You can just Google, what did God do to death? And you'll see all these scriptures. You can chase it for yourself. It's pretty amazing. God swallowed it. He just, he, how's that? He just ate death. You know what God likes to snack on? When God's got a little hankering for a little snack, he likes to snack on death just because it's a hobby for him. Why? Because God is life and death cannot hold life. Life bursts through death and decay. He abolished it. He rendered it powerless. <laughs> this one's just funny to me. He just threw it in a lake. <laughs> oh, th that's death? Let me frisbee it. There it goes. It's in a lake. Turns out it was a lake of fire. This uh, affords me the opportunity to reference Andy Sandberg twice in two months. I wish he'd thrown it on the ground. He bound it, and then he unbound those who were in it. Uh, one of my favorite metaphors is, um, is in the Bible, death is described like a prison, that we are all prisoners to death and to the fear of death, but Jesus is the master locksmith, right? Like the Satan in scripture has all of these locks. Those of you who are a little afraid of someone breaking in and you have all of those locks on your front door, Jesus can pick every one of them to free those imprisoned by death. He removed its sting. We have a family member who is deathly allergic 
to bee stings and wasp stings. Uh, we carry an EpiPen everywhere we go. Anytime we go hiking, camping, do you have the EpiPen? Because if we don't, it's as fast to the emergency room as possible because her, her, her throat swells up and she can't breathe. We're all afraid of bees in our house. Jesus just walked right over and removed the sting of death. He just took it out. Now it's harmless. And then I love what the Hebrew writer says. He just says, he just scorned it. He just scorned it like a baseball pitcher who is so angry at the batter that he just keeps beaning him four balls in a row. And then as the batter walks to first base, have you seen the meme of this? The pitcher just goes like that. That's what Jesus did to death. What do you want to do? You want to manage life on your own? You can do that. Everyone's free. Or you can fold your life into Christ. You can give your life to Jesus. If you want to do that, we're going to be worshiping and then we'll be celebrating what Jesus has done through an act of communion. And then afterwards, when we're done, Jake will send us out. And then Jake and I and some others will be down front. We would love to come, have you come down after the service and we would love to take what's known as your confession of faith and then help you come into Christ. Those of us who are able, let's, let's stand. Father, thank you that you killed death. It no longer has its sting. It has no power over us. Death tries to imprison us. It tries to hurt us. And those of us who are in Christ are free. And that doesn't just happen after we die where we get to spend eternity with you. That, we get that freedom right now. We get eternal life today. I thank you that you've also conquered sin. We do struggle with right and wrong. There's no question. You know that, Lord. But the power of sin you have killed. You've changed our hearts. You've changed what we want. We want you now. We want Christ. We want the power of your resurrection. We want the fellowship of your suffering. Thank you that you so generously give it to us. Lord, as we sing and declare your goodness, would you inhabit the praises of your people? In Jesus' name, amen.